So, last week we began a new series. It's just an eight-week series. Uh, I'm calling it Gold from God. Going through some of the great um, passages of Scripture where God gives us his guidance in such a way that he draws a lot of attention to it. Last week we talked about the Ten Commandments. And today we move to the Beatitudes. Which, of course, begin the Sermon on the Mount and are found in Matthew chapter 5. So let's read that passage. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now last week we talked about the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. We talked about how Jesus was in some way paralleling Moses when he went up on the mountain and gave this new law. We talked about how the Beatitudes, though parallel to the Ten Commandments in terms of structure, were very different than the Ten Commandments in terms of content. We talked about how this might have raised questions in the minds of the hearers. Was Jesus setting up an alternative law? Was Jesus giving a law which superseded the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments? And we talked about how Jesus clarified this right after the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now then, at this point, Jesus goes on to apply these principles to the commandments of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes on to say in Matthew 5.21, You have heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry, whoever insults his brother, whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And really most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is practical application of these principles to the various aspects of God's law and to life. The Sermon on the Mount is an explanation of the true meaning of God's law. A meaning the Israelites mainly missed because of the hardness of their heart. Most of them understood the Old Testament law merely as external requirements. You see, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was an external righteousness. But the righteousness of the believer is internal as well as external. This is why Jesus says at the end of that section that I read, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. God's law pertains to the inside as well as to the outside. Now the things that Jesus taught in the Beatitudes are really not new. For instance, taking the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the concept of being poor in spirit had already been taught in a number of places in the Old Testament. David said in Psalm 51:17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then in Psalm 34:18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we could do the same with all of the Beatitudes. We could see that these things were already present in the Old Testament. But Jesus brought them all together. And he, in doing so, he reinforces and emphasizes this inward aspect of the law. It's like the Jews primarily viewed the law as two-dimensional. But then Jesus arrives, following up on what the prophet said... And he portrays it as three-dimensional. Now, you have to go to elementary school before you go to high school. And the Ten Commandments had to be given first. Even little children can understand a lot about the Ten Commandments. Obey your parents. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't want what belongs to your brother. But the Beatitudes are almost impossible to teach to little children. How do you tell them you need to be poor in spirit? You need to be meek. You need to mourn over your sin. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are concepts that are not elementary. They require some maturity and depth. And so in the progression of God's revelation of his law, it makes sense that this would come later. Even the prophets came after Moses. And it's interesting, even to this day, there are many who are more comfortable with the outward part of God's law than with the inward. 
who have a much easier time with the Ten Commandments than they do with the Beatitudes, even in the Christian church, just like the Pharisees. But we can't pick our favorite. Do we want to focus on the Ten Commandments? Do we want to focus on the Beatitudes? God has given us both, and Christ brought them both together in the Sermon on the Mount. So according to the word of Christ, we must esteem and honor and cherish them both. Now let's focus on how each one of these Beatitudes begins. Blessed are. If we miss the theme of the blessing of God in the Beatitudes, we've missed an important part of it. You see, the change that occurs isn't only in what God is asking of us, that it's inward as well as outward. The change is also in what God gives to us in response. You know, in the Ten Commandments, only one of them contained a promise. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Exodus 20, 12. And Paul reaffirms that this is the commandment with a promise in Ephesians chapter 6. But even that promise, you know, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you or your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. It was an outward promise. It was a promise of earthly blessing. They'd live long lives and they'd prosper. But the blessings promised by the Beatitudes are quite different. They are primarily spiritual and heavenly. Being given the kingdom of heaven. Being comforted. Inheriting the earth. Being satisfied. Receiving mercy. Seeing God. Being called sons of God. Having the kingdom of heaven. Receiving great reward in heaven. The first thing to notice is the astonishing fact that God's blessing is available to human beings. I mean, why would a holy God who hates sin lavish his generous blessing upon sinners who have spurned him and rejected him? All of us want and desperately need God's blessing. I think we've all tasted of life with his blessing and life without his blessing. His blessing makes all the difference. Well, in the Beatitudes, God tells us how to qualify for this blessing. But let's not miss what this blessing is that he's talking about. You know, very often we read this beatitude and we focus exclusively on the requirement, the virtue that's being held up, poverty of spirit, for instance. But we miss the unmatchable blessing that God offers to those who are poor in spirit. They're given the kingdom of heaven. We are given a kingdom, not just a house, far greater than a company, 
or even a city or a nation. We've been given a kingdom. It's ours. It's land, it's people, it's resources, it's treasures, it's power, it's authority, it's glory is given to those who are poor in spirit. And we could go through all of the Ten Commandments, all of the Beatitudes and talk about each one, the, the, the blessing that comes, the comfort of God, the fact that we inherit the earth. I mean, who else promises that? Do this and you'll inherit the earth. Only someone who owns the earth. Being the object of God's mercy. Seeing God. Being called a child of God. Receiving great reward in heaven. These are things that people would give anything for. And we ought to give anything for them. The one who is given these things is indeed a very rich person. But that's the first thing. According to Jesus, there is a great treasure to be had. A treasure worth infinitely more than anything we'll ever have access to in this life. And this treasure doesn't just exist, but it's available to ordinary human beings like you and me. Have you ever noticed how little children don't yet have the ability to appreciate really amazing things? You know, you ever take your child to the Grand Canyon? You know, the splendor of the Grand Canyon, they, they, they don't even notice it. You know, they may be noticing the rocks at their feet or the pe people that are around them, but they, can't, they don't have the ability to grasp with the big things. Well, so often that's just the way we are when we hear things like this, you know. It's like these are treasures that are available to us, but it's like we're so focused on my job or on my back or on my clothing or on, you know, my car. But that we're, we miss the fact that these are treasures beyond our ability to pre even to be able to appreciate. These treasures are so great that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians will be opened so that they'll be able to see how great they are. And we need to pray the same for ourselves. But the blessing of God doesn't come upon just anyone. The treasure of God's friendship is not universally enjoyed. It is reserved for a peculiar people. It is reserved for those who will not follow in the way of the world, but for those who choose to enter into the narrow gate and walk on the hard path. As Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, 13, and 14, they suffer the scourge of the world's ridicule and its scorn, but they enjoy the great treasure of God's favor and his fellowship. You see, in the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us that his ways are contrary to the world's ways. The world tells us it's a curse to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to be righteous and pure, to be persecuted. But Jesus comes along and says, you're blessed when you're like that. 
The world says you save yourself by assertiveness, by self-confidence, by standing up for yourself and demanding your rights. But Jesus saves the poor in spirit, the meek, those persecuted for doing the right thing. Jesus says you can't save yourself, but God can save you. So live like you're trusting God to save you by being meek, by being poor in spirit, by mourning over your sin. We don't need to climb over people and cause others to fail in order to succeed. Rather, we must trust God to prosper us and tend to the business of blessing others, being merciful to others, being a peacemaker. Prosperity doesn't come by conniving or outsmarting or manipulating. Rather, God prospers those who trust him to prosper them who are pure in heart and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Perhaps nowhere else can we see the contrast between the world's mentality and God's mentality more starkly than here in the Beatitudes. The world elevates the person who is self-confident. God elevates the one who is poor in spirit. The world elevates the person who feels good about himself. God elevates the one who mourns over his sin. The world elevates the person who is assertive. God elevates the one who is meek. The world elevates the person who hungers for a thrill. God elevates the one who hungers for righteousness. The world elevates the person who is cool. God elevates the person who is merciful. The world elevates the person who has a dirty mind. God elevates the one who is pure in heart. The world elevates the person who is aggressive. God elevates the one who is a peacemaker. The world elevates the man who is popular and famous. God elevates the one who is persecuted for righteousness sake. We must realize that we are living in a completely different world than the citizens of this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't really belong here. We are strangers and pilgrims, foreigners. This is not our home. We're here for a while and God calls us to live while we're here according to the ethic of his kingdom. And the word of Jesus condemns human pride and self-righteousness and earthly-mindedness. In one sense, the Beatitudes reflect various facets of Christ-like living. But in another sense, the Beatitudes speak one single message. In one sense, they all say the same thing. There is an overall meaning, in other words, to the Beatitudes. Just like we saw last week with the Ten Commandments, that there is an overall meaning to the Ten Commandments. God, there's a connection between all these conditions, being poor in spirit, 
being mournful, being meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted for righteousness sake. These are all descriptions of a whole, looking at it from different angles. If you had to summarize them, you would say that it talking about having a humble heart before God. And then the rewards are all similar as well. And if you had to summarize them, you'd say that they receive the exaltation of God. So having a humble heart before God receives the blessing of his exaltation. You could summarize, I think, the uh, Beatitudes in what is said in 1 Peter 5.6. Interestingly, Peter was one of those who actually heard these words of the Beatitudes. And he said, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And that's the overall message here. But of course Christ is the ultimate example of this. He obtained the highest glory by humbling himself even to the point of death. And this is the last thing that we would have expected. It's so counterintuitive that the way to get up is to go down. The person who lowers himself is the person who is raised up by God. And here we see what is perhaps the most powerful and beautiful thing about the Beatitudes. They are a description of Jesus. He was poor in spirit. He was mournful. He was meek. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful. He was pure in heart. He was a peacemaker. And then he was persecuted for righteousness sake. And he was reviled and persecuted and all kinds of evil were uttered against him. And now as a result, he was exalted and he has received all of these treasures because of who he was. And now he wants to live in us. So we can be happy and hopeful even when we're poor. And when we're mourning and we're, when we're persecuted and when we're reviled. So living in us so we can find comfort in his promises as we sow seed in the world today knowing that we will bear the harvest of his kingdom and inherit the earth and obtain mercy from God and see him. We are not only walking in his footsteps but he is in us living his, reliving his life through us. Jesus gave the Beatitudes near the beginning of his ministry. Just before this, at the end of chapter 4, he calls his first four disciples, Peter being one of them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So these guys, they really don't know very much yet. They're just new. They don't know how to be disciples. They don't know what Jesus is all about. They've just gotten started. They're like in their first class of the semester. And 
Jesus sits down and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And here it is that not only the disciples are starting, Christianity is starting for the first time. This is the first time this class has been taught, in a sense. And so here Jesus sits everybody down and he paints a picture of this new way that he's bringing. He sets out what it means to be a member of his kingdom, to be a follower, a disciple of his. But in saying this, he's also telling them who he is, what his priorities are, how he thinks, and how he lives. And think about Peter. You know, we know Peter better than some of the other disciples just because Peter makes himself known in the Gospels so blatantly because of his personality. But the Beatitudes are a description of everything that Peter is not. He is not poor in spirit. He is not meek. He does not hunger after righteousness. He is not a peacemaker. He is not pure in heart. And he's not merciful. He does not rejoice when he is persecuted. We see examples of this left and right through the Gospels. And Jesus yet declares these Beatitudes... And they must have been shocking and disturbing to the disciples. And if they really grasped what he was saying, even shattering to them. This is not who they were at the time. But this is who Jesus was. And it's what his disciples would be in the future. The Beatitudes may not be what we're like in the present but as we are filled with the Lord and conformed into his image the Beatitudes do represent what we are becoming and we have a mighty God who's doing this work he can take the proudest man and make him poor in spirit he can take the most arrogant woman and make her meek He can take the most corrupt and filthy-minded person and make that person pure in heart. He can take the most vile and lustful person and make them hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he's done it many times. And not only do we have a mighty God, but we have a very patient Father. He doesn't demand impossible things and then smash us when we don't measure up. God sees us as his beloved children because he sees us through his son Jesus. He's ready to help us in our weakness. Jesus even sympathizes with us in our weakness. He uses circumstances as his rod of love to gently teach us how much we need him and how we must learn to trust him, slowly transforming us into the image of Jesus. Our natural inclination, our natural orientation is toward the affairs of this world. But slowly and often painfully, God is prying our hearts away from the concerns of this world and teaching us to care more about him, more about his kingdom, more about his precious promises. He is humbling us. He's teaching us to treat others in the way he's treated us. 
He's teaching us to trust in him even when he allows us to suffer. He's teaching us to love others even when they mistreat us. Right now, I have the great privilege of teaching a Sunday school class on marriage. And one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in, um, about marriage over the years is that the verses in the Bible which specifically address marriage are not the only verses which apply to marriage. I used to think that, you know, if you want to learn about marriage, just read those few passages that talk about marriage. Then I realized these are the passages, these specific passages about marriage are the ones that say things about marriage that no other passage says. But they don't repeat all the things that apply to marriage from other places in the Bible. We can't just read them and expect that we're going to get all we need. And you know which part of scripture which doesn't mention marriage has a lot of application to the way we relate to our spouses? The Beatitudes. Who's supposed to be the meek one? The husband or the wife? Both. Who's supposed to be poor in spirit? Pure in heart? Mourn over their sin? Merciful toward the other? A peacemaker? Hungry for righteousness? Content in the face of unfair treatment? Both. This is the way we're supposed to be. You can't be a good spouse until your life reflects the Beatitudes. We've got a long way to go, I know. But these Beatitudes are that glorious standard, that picture of Jesus that's being held up before us. And, you know, we're, we should not be hopeless because the one who was like this is the one in us. So the, the process of growing to be, to be conformed to the Beatitudes is a process of looking to Jesus and drawing near to him and yielding to him and opening our hearts to him and knowing him better. And then he can display these beautiful attributes in us through his spirit. Let us pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for the gift of your son and all that he came to teach us and display before us. And dear Lord, we pray that you would help us to be conformed to him. We pray that these things that he said in the Beatitudes would be worked into our lives, not by human effort, O oh Lord. We know that's a futile way to, to work, but by the power of your Spirit, renewing us and changing us, breaking down our pride, opening our hearts to, to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.